Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Today I welcome author Benjamin Ume, who has written a book titled Of His Finger. And I welcome Benjamin from Great Britain. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, Douglas. Nice to talk to you. Tell me what this title refers to, Of His Finger. Is this a historical novel? Is it a mystery? What type of book is this? Of His Finger actually refers to the finger of God. So it's a religious thing. It's a matter of belief. The book is about prayer, isn't it? The book is about prayer, yes. And see prayer as as an instrument that God has set up to enable us to reach to Him. We see Him as our Father, so we need prayer. And that uh, usually when He responds, He responds, His response we see it as His finger, the finger of God. And your idea of prayer is not repetitive necessarily, it's it's um, relationship-driven, isn't it? Yes, it is. And in writing this book, what motivated you? How did you get started in putting this book together? Um, actually, I have always wanted to send this message out because I used to put notes together for lectures at our church service on the just before Easter, and I was one of the lecturers. So the, my, the, the things I put together um, from part of this book, but the main thing is that it is a message which I receive directly. I'm spiritual by nature, so that's the way it came about. And I think I should spread the message to the whole world, including myself, you know. The book itself has scriptural references in it, but it also has stories or narratives. Explain those. Okay, um, when you try to make a point, you have to bring it down to the earth. What I mean is um, you have to relate it with what's going on in the world, the society, people's life. So... When you go to talk about what God can do for you, you want to uh, explain it further, make, you know, bring it, make the point, so a story comes up, obviously. And those stories actually are real. All the stories I have in the book, you know, some of them are funny, but they're real, you know. Ah, they're, they're based on, on actual things that have taken place in individuals' yes. lives. Yes, like, you know, somebody, uh, getting married and uh, suddenly meets the old boyfriend or somebody who uh, was not treated properly in the office and decided to seek vengeance by some dangerous prayers, you know, things like that. These are real because I know I know these people, you know. Yes. And and your book, when you decided to write this, who did you think this would appeal to and why? 
shall appeal to everybody eventually, but first of all, it will appeal, appeal to Christians and all people who accept that there is a God up there or somewhere controlling our destiny. It will appeal, I think so. And, and, des- and describe the process of writing your book. Now, did this take a long time, or was it a very short period of time before it came out in print? Douglas, it took a long time, believe me, because you write, and somebody is right behind you. You don't see him. He says, no, don't do this. Go there, you know. So you cancel everything you've done and start all over again. You know, it, it, that kind of thing. It took five years. Five, five years. And you're planning to do some sequels to this book also, aren't you? Yes. I uh, I have the main, the main story. It's yet to come. This is just to uh, attract attention to what God can do for us or what he has done for us. The main picture, that is the blueprint of divine people, the divine blueprint, will come in the volumes 2 and 3. This is volume 1. Was anything in this book a a journey of self-discovery as well. Did you learn anything yes. in writing this? Yes. I had this experience of um, getting an, almost an immediate response to my prayers. So, you know, so I think, I think uh, my, my own experience would have to confirm that this is real. Because anytime I pray, I pray a lot, I would always get a response right away from my boss. And it helped me a lot, believe me. The scriptures do say that you should pray without ceasing, which doesn't necessarily mean, from what I understand it to mean, uh, necessarily being in a prone or a uh, a kneeling position, but in an attitude of communication. Is that how you see prayer? You don't need to kneel down or stand up or cry. There are various ways people communicate with God, because the idea of prayer actually, is to use a link, a particular link that is given to us as a gift from God himself. Believe me. I know this because they told me. So you don't have to take any particular posture. People do what they want to do. So long as you express your emotions properly and realistically, you can lay down, you can stand up, you can face the wall, you can open the window, close the door, whatever. I'll say in the boss, I'll pass me. The primary thing is communication. And how would you introduce this book to someone who doesn't know about prayer or its contents? Uh, I would uh, like to ask him if he believes in God. And if the response is negative, or if he would, like most people these days, they might wave it off by their left hand. Then I say, no, 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 you are missing something that will really change your life. You know what I mean? And then from there he will probably listen and I begin to introduce what I'm talking about. Because prayer is a divine gift. It's not I mean it's not folklore, you know what I mean? It's not it's really. It is a living spirit which God has planted into everyone's most. You know. So you, all you have to do is like the computer access it. If you access it, you, you get the messages. But there are conditions for that. It's not it's not free for us. So you are a believer in God, and you have a personal relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. I do, very strongly. I do. With humbleness, I do. What do you want readers to take away from this work? That God has given us all 
a gift because he he he, he thinks he believes we are his children, and he's always works towards that goal for us. One of the goals is this one that he call upon him when he wants, and he answers it. But he has a bigger picture for us because he wants us back to him. We lost him somewhere along the line. You know, there are fables, there are folklore about how it happened, but the fact is true that he, what he had for us, we missed it. So he tried to bring us back to him. This, this is a, a common belief in Christian circles. It is the truth. And how is this book unlike others in the marketplace? There are a lot of books about theology and about faith and relationship. This one I noticed in my reading of it is uh, set up differently. But how would you describe it? What makes it different from others that are out in the marketplace? Yeah, the, the, the books in the marketplace are doing fine because they, are, they also have the same goal. But the problem is, the difference is this, uh, that um, they like to entice you with the benefit of praying. They want to tell you, if you pray, you get this. If you pray, you get that. They also sometimes tell you how to pray, whether you should kneel down or go to the altar or go to the priest. But that's not what I'm trying to do. I want to tell the truth about the power of prayer. It is an electromagnetic force field in us. We can project it. It's it, it, the divinity that I'm actually bringing out to the book. That's the first with other books. This one shows the divine source, how it all started, who did it, and why. You also have uh, some fill-in-the-blank areas in your book. Explain what those are about. The in the uh, in the book, in the narrative, you have areas for the reader to fill in uh, okay. additional. Well, usually, you know, it's like redundant to me to go repeating what they have written in the scriptures in the Bible. So I just uh, I, I list it for you to. I give a reference. Usually, I make it so that you can check your Bible and uh, fill it in. It, it's not. If you can kill the story, the, the, the gist of the book, if you have too many materials that are, you know, off the cuff, you know. But the references are there for individuals yes. to grow as they read the scriptures and read the actual context. Yes. What, in your estimation, is the most enjoyable or astounding story that you have discovered or talked about in your book? Those are simple stories about human behavior. You know, it's human interaction. That you know, like the story of Kirika, uh, 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 the story of uh, the the church priest, and uh, some powerful stories like the king who actually won a battle. Match. You know, these things struck out very much. Imagine fabulous. I mean, a man who was you know surrounded by all kinds of kings and armies. And, he he's rich, but he he doesn't have the power. He needs the power. The prayer helps him, you know. And also sometimes you have um, like some heads of state before they choose their colleagues, you know, cabinet, presidential cabinet, or things like that. Some of them do pray seriously so that they can pick the right personnel. Excellent, yeah. excellent. Well, those are those are practical applications to the idea of prayer. Was there anything challenging about putting this book together? Nothing very challenging except uh, writing and counseling and writing. They change it for you. Some, they do come to show me 
I mean, I don't want to go into that area. But I had a lot of corrections from above to what I was saying. Um, when when I want to go academic, they, they stop me. <laughs> That's a challenge. So keeping it very practical and something that people could yeah. relate to. Where do we get copies of your book? I have a publisher there in the U.S. They call them Ex Libris. X-L-I-B-R-I-S. They are, they are, I don't know if I should quote the website. The website is www.xlibris.com slash books slash web images slash wd.uk30416. They could also find it by uh, doing a, a search under your name, Doctor yeah, okay. Doctor yeah. Benjamin Yume, yeah. which is U M E. Thank you very much. <laughs> My pleasure. Yeah. And the title of the book again is "Of His Finger: A Very Practical Guide yeah. to Prayer." Very simply put together in sixty-five pages, yet it's full of stories and full of scripture references, and well done. Thank you, Doctor Yume, for joining us today. Thank you, Mr. Butler. Thank you very much. My pleasure, and for Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Project Houdini, and our author is Tom Fillinger. Thank you, Tom, for joining me today. 
Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Jay. This is an interesting and intriguing look at elements of the Bermuda Triangle and other things. It says on the back of your book, for 16 long months, the U.S. Navy was helpless. Admiral Nathan Summerfield and his entire Project Houdini exploration team had gone into the Bermuda Triangle and never came out. That already has my attention. Tell me about this story. Where did you come up with the concept to write this? Well, uh, actually, it goes back away. Um, I grew up inspired by uh, science fiction writers such as H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, C.S. Lewis, and then later Isaac Asimov, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, and Robert Heinlein. They fed my need to relate history to science. I've always had a great interest in uh, mysterious uh, occurrences, things outside the ordinary, and I think the Bermuda Triangle certainly would qualify as one of those um, uh, things. Uh, There have been um, over 500 ships, planes, and personnel who who actually did disappear in that general area. That's an intriguing number. There's a lot of mystery related or associated with the Bermuda Triangle. It's a mystery that's never been solved. Tell me how this relates to the Houdini project. The U.S. Navy decided that they were going to send an exploration team into that area and try to find out why these occurrences happened. One of the um, there was a team of nine. Um, most of them were scientists. Um, the admiral, of course, Admiral Nathan Summerfield, uh, led the expedition. But uh, journalist uh, Alan Maxwell um, was a former Navy man, and he was asked to go along and record uh, the events. Uh, he made a series of tape recordings, which subsequently were lost, and uh, he had to recreate. And the story unfolds pretty much in that manner. Um, he, he he discovered uh, some terrible and dangerous truths, uh, and, and uh, he battled forces within the government uh, who attempted to suppress the information under the guise of national security. This story, is it 100% fiction, or are there some elements of truth involved in this oh, story? No. Oh, I, I, there, there are elements, there definitely are many elements of truth in it. My conclusions are help you to think outside the box. Uh, basically, a good book should be entertaining. Uh, it should be informative, uh, whether it's fiction or not. Uh, I always interject a little humor and a little bit of uh, valuable knowledge. For example, the exploration team had to go through survival training, and one of the venues was in the desert. And, and this is a true... This is a real fact. If you were to go on the desert, there's you would never have to worry about getting water. Uh, there's a um, you dig a, a pit and put a container in it, and you cover it. And the difference between the extreme heat above and the coolness below precipitates up to a quart of water a day out of the air. So if you need five quarts of water, you dig five sun wells. Interesting. I was not aware of that fact. That's uh, something I can use as a practical application if I ever get stuck in the wilderness somewhere. <laughs> well, there there are other things. You know, there um, uh, when that, when the government does give you survival training, they take you on a lot of different terrains, uh, jungle and uh, 
uh, urban and uh, mountainous and uh, ocean, uh, surviving on the ocean. Uh, the reason that I chose the Navy as the vehicle for this story is because most of the disappearances of ships and planes occurred in that area over the water. And there have been some reported phenomena, uh, such as a greenish fog and time lost unaccountably um, flights through that area. There are many, many theories as to why these happened. And uh, mine is one of many possible explanations, but any, anything that can help you think outside the box is good. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, I did. <laughs> Where did the title of this book come from, The Houdini Project? Okay, in with the hope of survival going into that area, they they took Harry Houdini was arguably one of the world's greatest escape artists, and um, their intent naming the project after him so that uh, hopefully they would escape unharmed. As it happened, only one sole survivor returned. He really wasn't a sole survivor. There were other survivors, but they didn't return. He did. Interesting and intriguing idea. Who do you think this book is going to appeal to and, and why? Oh, boy. It should appeal to a large audience. Uh, people who uh, are conspiracy theorists, people who like conspiracies, uh, people who uh, like action. There's plenty of action in there. Um, people who like uh, scientific facts. Uh, woven into the story, uh, uh, people who like sci-fi in general. It, it, the, the, um, there should be a broad market. Um, uh, I wrote the book because there was a great interest in the unknown uh, conspiracy theory, Bigfoot, UFOs, the Loch Ness Monster, Area 51, the Roswell crash, and on and on. I actually have seen UFOs on a couple of occasions. Uh, I can't tell you what they are, but I can tell you what they aren't. They uh, aren't anything that we have. <laughs> and you have have you woven into the story anything about UFOs, or is that just a tangential bit of information that no, you that, uh, have experienced? No, that's just 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 general information. Um, as I said, I try to make the stories informative, and I did a great deal of research on this so that the. Um, the book would be credible. There would be many interesting facts that would be useful to people. And, and I also wove a good bit of humor in there, too. To, you know, if you're going to entertain, entertain. <laughs> I certainly agree with that. That's something that we need more of. This is your first novel, isn't it? It, it is my first. Uh, it was 15 years in the coming. Uh, the reason being, uh, I've, I've had so many jobs in my life. I've had probably in excess of 60 different jobs, if you include about a dozen volunteer jobs, um, explorer, scout advisor, and uh, Girl Scout cookie helper, and, you know, things of that type. Um, but uh, often uh, I would work two jobs. I would have a full-time and a part-time job. Uh, the part-time job was basically to get money for Christmas presents and for birthdays and anniversaries. <laughs> Um, but in any in any case, a couple of the jobs that I've had were actually lasted for 20 years. I did at one point have three jobs at, at one time for two and a half years. I worked two part times and one full time job, and I almost ruined my health. I, I don't recommend that. <laughs> wow, 
I think uh, writing a book, although it's complex, would be a little more enjoyable than that since you're drawing from your imagination. How would you introduce this book to someone? Uh, well, um, I, what, what I would say to them is, have you ever wondered about the Bermuda Triangle? Boy, have I got a book for you. <laughs> what makes your book different from the other novels and stories that have already been published that's in the marketplace? Well, there there are several. There's there's plenty of room for different different types of stories. Um, mine is a, a a blend of fact and fiction. It's it's a story that should appeal to a broad range of people. Uh, I kind of lost the train of thought. Would you refresh me? <laughs> sure. I was just asking a follow up question: How this book would be different or set oh, apart different. from others in the marketplace? Set it apart. Yeah. Okay. I've I've been criticized for not writing down to a sixth grade level, and I do that intentionally. When I was a young boy, I read at a pretty early age, probably six, age six or seven. I, I read adult books, and I had to frequently consult a dictionary. And so the worst thing that a, a youngster reading the book would be that he'd have to go and look up a few big words and uh, thus uh, enrich his life. <laughs> I think that's a good way to author a book. It certainly sets it apart from most novels that are in the marketplace, for sure. I did mention to you that that I had seen a few UFOs in my life, even though this doesn't really relate directly to the book. But uh, I'm an amateur astronomer, and I've had uh, I've taken my telescope out um, usually in the evening when uh, it's dark and there are less ambient light sources to detract from the image that you're seeing. But in, in, in any rate, I, I was looking at the moon on a number of occasions, and generally uh, when the moon is in uh, half-moon half phase, the viewing is excellent along the Terminator line between the light and the dark. That's when you can really get some sharp images under high magnification. Once in a while, I would see a light moving in the vicinity of the moon, apparently across the surface, small but bright, uh, uh, probably small because it was so far away. In actuality, it was probably pretty good size. But, but uh, the strange thing about these lights is once in a while, they would change direction, which a comet or a meteor is incapable of doing. So they seem to be under intelligent control. That's something that always fascinated me. And as I said, I I can't tell you what they are, but I know they're not anything we have. Your book, when does it take place? What is the time frame, the setting? Uh, okay, it's, it's pretty much current. Uh, it was in the, uh, the 1990s. It transpires in various areas in California and in Florida and in New York. One of the um, one of the main characters, uh, Harry Rosenberg, is a uh, uh, um, an editor uh, of a uh, newspaper and uh, and Alan Maxwell's boss. And uh, he, when he finds out that. Uh, that uh, Maxwell had an accident that they found him floating in the Atlantic and and subsequently had to amputate his legs be, below the knee. Uh, he went to visit him in the hospital, and uh, that's when he got an indication of what was going on. It's uh, there, I, I've had some I've had some pretty good reviews on this book. 
and uh, I think you find it enjoyable. Basically, publishers today, um, unless you're a celebrity or associated with a spectacular event, they'd rather have you do all the promoting, regardless of how good your story may be. What was the most challenging part about doing the book, other than all of the legwork that you're now having to do to promote it? Well, the the promotion the promotion is tough because if let's say for example somebody wants to uh, look your book up on the internet, well, first of all, they'd have to know either your name or the title of your book, or uh, they could search the internet all day long and not find it. Uh, as a matter of fact, even if if you look Project Houdini up on the internet, there's about seven different entries. And only a few of them are mine. <laughs> um, uh, the president, when he wanted to uh, get reelected, had a what he called Project Houdini. Although uh, I didn't borrow the title from him, he borrowed it from me. <laughs> so <laughs> that's okay. And again, the title is Project Houdini, and our author is Tom yeah. Fillinger. Tom, where do we get copies of your book? Okay. Um, they're uh, they're available um, through Ex um, uh, Libris, uh, of course, uh, has them online. Um, Amazon.com has them. BarnesandNoble.com has them. Uh, for, for those who are on a budget, get the electronic version if you can. It's uh, it's under five dollars. That's a good way um, to read it. I'd only make fifty cents on it, but but nevertheless you get some enjoyable reading. The electronic version is great because you can take it on vacation with you or uh, or when you have get a, in a, you have a busy life, a busy schedule, and you want to sit down and relax for a few minutes, you pull out the electronic book and read Project Houdini. Well, thank you for sharing the information. Tom, are you planning to write another book in the near future? Oh, I already, yeah, I already have. It's going to the publisher uh, very shortly. Um, it's uh, the title of that one is Starflower. Um, it's about a uh, a latent telepath from Earth who encounters a race of telepaths from um, elsewhere in the galaxy, and uh, it tells the story of, of how this difficult transition from direct thought, uh, from uh, from uh, speech to direct thought, uh, how how strange and how difficult that was for him. Well, that sounds like a page-turner. Uh, we look forward to talk to you about that when it comes out. Thank you so much, Jake. My pleasure. Again, the title of the book is Project Houdini. Our author is Tom Fillinger, and if you're searching online, that's T-H-O-M, last name F-I-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. Tom, thanks again for being with us today. My pleasure, Jake. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. 
She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Playtime for Truth. And the author is John Stevens, and John joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, John. Hi there. Well, and you join us from uh, what city in the United Kingdom? Where, where are you located? I'm right in the middle of England, actually. More or less the middle. Um, nearest town, I suppose, is Leicester, Nottingham. Leicester. Birmingham, if you like, not very far away. Well, this book, Playtime for Truth, uh, you write about it in this way. You say, you know, it's intended to amuse, entertain, and, and even um, occasionally challenge some of the values we hold in life. Uh, of course, relationships with God and relationships with those around us. But one of the things that you value so much is a sense of humor. Uh, why is that so important, John? Well, it's a serious world, you know, and we've got to take life seriously. And we can go to, go to church and be serious, but we can, still, we can still smile. And I think if you try to tell somebody of what you believe, if you go with a long face and dismal face, you ain't going to get anywhere. I think you have to be uh, prepared to smile, have a little joke against yourself, if you like, you know. I think it's quite important, is that? Well, you've been involved in some very serious events. Uh, you flew back in World War II, flew uh, in the Korean War for the uh, Royal Air Force. Uh, uh, how, you know, how did that, was, was that career started because of the war? Well, I was born in 1926, which was a pretty bad time for the world, wasn't it? The general strike in England. I, I claim no responsibility for that. But anyway, <laughs> when, I was, when I was big enough and old enough, I joined the RAF. I joined Bomber Command as a wireless operator. And uh, I liked the life. I stayed on after the war. And then the Korean War came along, and they asked, would people like to volunteer to be, be trained as pilots? And I thought, well, that's not a bad idea. So I did, and I was commissioned, and I stayed in the RAF for about 20-odd years before I retired. And then I decided I wanted to be a teacher. So as soon as I left the RAF, I went straight to college and became a teacher, and I taught children for ooh, 23, 24 years, something like that. Having great fun. I enjoyed teaching very much. Great fun. Well, I'm sure your students enjoyed you because of your uh, sense of humor, your, the way you've, you, you know, the, your view of the world, and of course all your experiences, obviously a tremendous amount of experiences in your military career. Uh, how did the book come about? Well, like the other books that I've written, really by accident, because... I always used to write poems for the wife, you know, 
I had two wives. The first one died of cancer. But my second wife, we used to write poems for her on her birthday, her anniversary, Christmas, Easter, you name it, I wrote them. And over 20-odd years, that becomes quite a lot of poems and stories. And I also used to write the, the school plays and the um, things for assembly, you know, Christian things. And one day the wife said to me, why don't you have those published? And I said, no, I said, no. Who's going to be interested? I'm only a village school teacher, after all. Anyway, behind my back, she took me to a publisher who said, uh, have you got any more? And so it really developed from then. I got bitten by the, the writing bug for real, you know. So you'd like to provoke some thinking. Uh, wh why is that so important? Well, don't you think that through life, most of us take for granted what we've been told or what, we've, what is convention. We don't really stop to think, why do I do that? Why do I think this? Uh, you know, and if you start to think, if you meditate on something or other, you can meditate on the Bible, it's a very good idea, of course, but if you meditate on something and you think, why is this? Why did it happen? You really get a much better idea of what life's all around. Because life isn't all just um, jolly parties and drinking sessions and things. Life is really quite serious, but there's no reason why you shouldn't take it with, with a pinch of salt now and again. Serious, but not deadly, as you put it. Yeah, that's right. Have you but always been a Christian? you a long face and try to tell them of your faith, uh, see so if you look all dismal and things, well... You could be like me, you might say. <laughs> I think, like you, no, thank you very much. So it's, it's better to have it with a smile. And if you can take a joke against yourself, so much the better, of course. Have you always been a Christian? No, no. Um, I was raised in a Christian family, but we never really took it seriously, so I didn't. Um, if you'd asked me, did I believe in Jesus and God and so on, I'd have probably said, oh yes, but did nothing about it. Until um, when I met my, what was to be my second wife, she'd been a missionary nurse in Kenya, and um, she was the right sort of Christian. She had the right beliefs, but uh, she didn't try to ram it down my neck. If she'd rushed out at me with a Bible in hand, I'd have been off over the horizon pretty quick. But no, we went to various um, conferences, saw Billy Graham, as to build a football ground, and all sorts of things like that. And gradually I realized the truth, and I gave my life to the Lord. And since then, Audrey and I went all over the place. Of course, she, she died, unfortunately, of cancer also in uh, 2000. So uh, my faith has gone on, <laughs> really through my wife, which was very, very good for me, of course. Well, I'm certain you miss her a great deal, and uh, also not only miss her, but cherish a lot of great memories, and uh, I'm sure you two must have uh, had a few laughs together. Oh, you betcha. You bet. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> well, as I look at your table of contents and, and see uh, some... Uh, Kind of interesting titles of these short stories. One of the first ones that jumps out 
is Goldilocks and the Three Bad Bears. Now, what is that one about? Well, there again, I'm trying to teach people something there, you know, in a, in a, in a humorous way. Um, we all know the story of Goldilocks and things. But here's a way of saying how um, Big Daddy Bear, how he uh, he was selfish and nothing else. Everything had to be done for him, you know. And she, was the wife, was, well, she's a natural liar. Well, we all tell lies, but we hope not too many. And there's a little boy who we can all identify with the the young teenager painting the neck who wants everything and wants it now. And uh, if you can tell such stories in a, in a humorous way and people that laugh at them and then realize at the same time, oh, yes, I know someone like that. <laughs> Maybe it's me. Well, that sounds like, uh, you know, something that I'm sure we could all relate to. We may not want to uh, share openly with even maybe our friends about about what, who we truly are, right? Absolutely, yes. Who we are in ourselves, and if you're a Christian, who you are in Christ. Tell us a little bit more about this statement you make. I quote you here, you are important to the God who created you. Why do you, why, you know, why is that a, a message in your book? That's a very deep question, isn't it? Uh, well, we, God has a purpose for everyone's life, as I see it, one way or another. We may not always know that purpose at the beginning. It may come to us very late in life. But if we really know what God wants us to do, or what we can do for Him, bearing in mind what He did for us, which is far more important, of course, because we could never do for God half a tenth to what Jesus has done for us. I mean, the, uh, there's heaven and there's hell, you know, whether you believe it or not, it's there. And it's better to... Uh, <laughs> know where you are with God not to really if you could turn the clock back John uh, would you change anything I wouldn't have a war war is stupid of course it's only men's men's stupid greed really greed and want for power that causes war I would certainly stop that but for things that I could stop oh yes when you look back at certain things in your life you can say, well, I wish I hadn't said that, or I wish I'd done this. I think we all have those sort of guilty feelings that are, the longer you live, the more, the more turning points, the more crossroads you come to. And it depends which road you take, I suppose, really. So, yes, there are several things. To be specific, um, probably should have got a bit more get up and go a bit more selfish in my life, I suppose, and got further on than I ever did, but I was quite happy to be uh, in charge of a bomber and in charge of a school and write things, you know. <laughs> but sometimes I think, well, I, I could have done this, really, got off my backside and done this, and I would have got further, but I'm a happy sort of guy, so uh, <laughs> maybe not too many. Why don't you just share with us a little bit about the fish with attitude? That story. 
Well, we all know people in life who either grumble or think they're above their own station. They think, if only people had done this for me, I could have been, you know, the, the commander, I could have been the boss, whatever. Uh, never quite content with... I mean, that fish there was lying in the pool. All his food was coming to him. All he had to do was open his mouth, collect it, swallow, open it again and swallow. And that was great. He could swim around. He was a happy-looking fish. He was big and strong. And then, of course, like so many people, he had ambitions <clears throat> beyond what he was capable of. And so he decided that that chair at the side of the bank, if he could land on that, he would be king of the of the entire stretch of the world, as far as he knew the world. And, of course, he did. He leapt out and he got into the chair all right. But, of course, that was his downfall, because fish don't sit too happily on chairs. If he'd been um, grateful for what he had, he wouldn't have been so daft. But then we're all like that a bit at times, aren't we? Yes, we are. We often uh, think there are greener pastures when everything around us, for some reason, is, is as green as we need, isn't it? <laughs> And the grease, the the, um, the grass on the other side of the fence is always supposed to be greener and longer, isn't it? Right. Well, John, it's been a delight to talk to you. As as you point out, faith should be serious but not miserable, and uh, we need to look in the mirror and laugh at ourselves occasionally. And I guess we'll close out with a little bit more on this thought. God loves you even though you may not believe he exists. Ain't that a fact? Oh, yes. Well, most of the... And I, as I look in our village or in the town, and I think, how many of these people are Christian? How many of them, when they die, will go to heaven? And there's not a lot. And so many of them would deny the existence of God. Well, that's their problem. God believes in them, even if they don't believe in God. Which is rather unfortunate, really, isn't it? Uh, I don't like to talk about going to hell, but it, it's in the Bible. So whatever form it is, it's, it's there. It'd be just nice to, uh, to save a few many people from going to a nasty place when they can go to a, a place of happiness with their Lord. That's really what that means, I suppose. John, thanks so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Tell us how to get your book. <laughs> get by it, of course. Um, <laughs> well, I should think any well-known Christian bookshop, Amazon, of course, will always sell it. You can buy it directly from Libris. Mm -hmm. I don't suggest you write to me to send them. It's a heck of a long way from Texas, isn't it? <laughs> Well, it's a small world today. It's a delight to have you on the show. It's, uh, you can tell that uh, your book uh, you know, represents this view of life, this attitude, uh, something you hold dear about you need to laugh a little and you can just kind of hear it in your voice that there's that uh, little bit of uh, humor that just kind of stirs within you. On a personal level, I must say it's, it's nice to talk to people around your your part of the world. I spent a few days 
at the U.S. Air Force Base at, um, on the Louisiana-Texas border. I can't remember the name of the town, but I had a great time there. Great guys, you Yanks. Great time. <laughs> well, thanks, John. Thanks again for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. My pleasure. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.